Hi there. Thank you so much for joining us for this audio presentation of Ego Psychology and Nature Deficit Disorder. My name is Brittany Rattiani. I'm an Associate Marriage and Family Therapist and Adjunct Professor of Psychology here in California. And I am so excited to be able to share this information with you in a different type of format. I like to give this presentation in person, preferably in a nature space. But given the restrictions we're all experiencing with the ongoing pandemic and the changes our world is going to see following this, we're going to be comfortable using this online modality here. And I hope that you are able to enjoy this in a nature setting if you are able to do so. Now, before we begin with the learning portion of this presentation, I want you to stop and think, when is the last time you spent some time in nature intentionally? The last time maybe you went to a park or on a hike, or to a lake, a pond, or to the ocean just to simply enjoy the beauty of nature. Now think about your everyday life. It's likely that your everyday life does not happen to include those strong natural elements. We happen to live in a very industrialized, urban and suburban world. But when's the last time you noticed the nature that happens to exist in your everyday life? Perhaps it's trees where you live, maybe in your backyard or the complex of the housing unit you live in. Maybe there are some lovely bushes or plants or even just open spaces of green grass on your commute to work or near your workspace. Do you happen to have plants in your home? Some of us grow herbs for our kitchen or have plants that just liven up our space. And during that little mini exploration, did you consider the food that you eat and how that might be an encounter with the natural world also? Fruits, vegetables, animal products, all of those things come from the natural living world. We come into contact with this on a regular basis. And not only do we struggle with acknowledging this, we struggle with incorporating more of it into our everyday lives. There's a tendency to seek convenience. And it's a natural human desire. And don't get me wrong, I do the same thing. I also have DoorDash on my phone and have been a frequent user of it during the pandemic especially. But we tend to sacrifice the natural world in the name of convenience or in the name of what we might call modernization or the introduction and perpetuation of the technology era. Truthfully, these things can coexist if we are intentional about it. And that's part of what makes me so passionate about this idea of eco-psychology is that truthfully, it's not all that hard. And we're doing a lot of this in our lives and in the world already. So if we increase our awareness and increase our intention around it, we can see some significant gains in our own mental health and physical wellness. In addition to saving the planet that is currently experiencing some pretty dangerous stuff with winds and wildfires and floods, things that aren't really supposed to be happening as a result of climate change. So let's take some time today 
to pause before we really jump into learning more about this to acknowledge where you may have encountered nature today and to honor that little moment in time. Maybe it was the yogurt you ate for breakfast this morning or the berries you put on your cereal. Maybe it's the tree outside your window and you've chosen now to open that window and to look at that tree. Identify where you've had a nature contact today and where you might be able to have one following this audio exploration today. Let's talk about what eco-psychology is. To state it simply, eco-psychology is the awareness that all living things are interconnected. We are reliant on the flora and fauna and the other people in our world. Simple enough concept, right? But how often do we really think about this? How often do we think about how our actions impact the soil around us? How that impacts the flora and the fauna, the plants and animals that are able to live there? How often do we think about the way an aphid might impact our well-being? Or the ecosystem that helps provide the food and the clean air that we need? We tend to think of these things on a much bigger scale. And in some ways, we have nature documentaries to thank for this. Most of them in recent years have been focused on introducing us to far-reaching places of the earth that are seeing the most significant impact from climate change. And this is good. This is where our awareness begins, and it is something we need to be aware of. However, there are also things in our immediate awareness, in our immediate spaces that we occupy, that are impacted by us. The tree that's outside my window tends to be home to some scrub jays. Scrub jays are wonderful because they eat little pests, but they happen to be a bit of a pest in my book themselves because their little cry that they make is very irritating and very distracting. So to counteract this, especially while I'm working from home, I put a little plastic hawk on my deck so that the scrub jays will be afraid of it and leave. Well, when the scrub jays left, a different neighbor moved in from the animal kingdom and one that I appreciated far less, rats. Once the scrub jays left, the rats moved in because my plastic hawk wouldn't do anything against the rats, but it did eliminate the irritating little scrub jays that helped keep them away. So the plastic hawk is gone, the scrub jays are back, I'm working on patience, and my home is now rodent free. The actions that we take impact the immediate world around us. But we also have a symbiotic relationship with nature. We tend to think of nature as a man versus nature type of perspective, that we have to battle the elements or endure difficult aspects of being out in nature, that it's hard, there's weather to contend with, there are pesky bugs to contend with. If you've ever been hiking or camping during the summer, especially near a body of water, you've met mosquitoes. And we don't tend to have a very friendly relationship with mosquitoes but they are part of the natural world and they are pollinators of plants. As we've seen in recent years, pollinators, particularly bees, have taken a significant hit in their population numbers, which has affected our food supply. 
recognizing that once upon a time, we did have a symbiotic relationship with nature and that not only we can do it now, but that we need to. Not only does the ecosystem itself benefit from us living with nature rather than being against it or struggling with it, but it also improves our mental and physical health. As we've embraced industrialization and modernization of the world, which again are not necessarily bad things, but as we've embraced them and essentially left behind our primitive nature-oriented selves, we've welcomed disease and we've welcomed chronic illness into our lives. We are designed and truly meant as homo sapiens to be out in nature, to be amongst the dirt and the trees and the bugs and recognizing that all of these things are interconnected. As we've walked away from that, we've replaced it with virtual reality. Um, there have been some studies that compare virtual nature experiences to authentic nature experiences. And the truth is that the digital world, even with as high def and 4D as it's become, it just doesn't cut it. The same mental health disparities that exist without any nature exposure continue to exist, even with a virtual or digital nature exposure. We see this most prominently in our children. We might have thought it was going to be college students or working professionals who are notoriously office bound and on computers all day, but we see it mostly in children. Now, children have this intuitive connection to the earth. So many children, when they go to an aquarium or a marine life park, a zoo for the first time, they have a mixed experience. It's amazing to see these animals up close and to learn so much about them and to see how the zookeepers and we might be able to have a friendly, non-threatening type of engagement with them. But on the other hand, children are usually the ones who ask, why is that animal in a cage? Isn't that animal supposed to be in the jungle? Isn't this whale supposed to be in the ocean instead of doing tricks and letting people jump off of its nose? This feels confusing. Children are those little wizards of wisdom who have that intuitive connection that we've lost as we've embraced modernity and industrialization. So as we are pushing those values, technology, modernization, onto our children, they're spending less time outside. Those little wizards of intuition are losing that magical ability. We often see this presenting as attention deficit hyperactivity disorder. Or we wonder why our kids have such a hard time sitting still for eight hours at school. They weren't meant to. And neither are we. But the more we try to utilize technology for gain, again, not necessarily a bad thing, but the more we rely on it, the more we lean on it, the more we incorporate this into childhood education and they spend less time outside, we're seeing more significant health disparities and mental health disparities in our youth and children. ADHD rates are skyrocketing. Social interaction skills are declining rapidly. Our ability to focus and concentrate is decreasing. 
We need those natural breaks in the natural world to get outside and see the sun and to see the sky, feel the wind on our faces. And two 15-minute breaks a day isn't going to cut it. This term has been coined nature deficit disorder. Now, it's important to clarify that this is not a DSM-5 diagnosis, nor is it an ICD-10 diagnosis. The ICD-10 is the International Classification of Diseases, version 10, and it's essentially the DSM-5 of the medical world. There's criteria. If you meet the criteria, voila, you have that disease or disorder. So this is not a official diagnosis of sorts, but we do see strong evidence of it, again, especially in our young people. And there has been movement to try and advocate for NDD, nature deficit disorder, or something similar to that, to be included as a criterion in the DSM-5. Because again, the more we get away from the natural world and who people have historically been and were designed to be, we're seeing those strong increases in health and mental health disparities. There's been research indicating that folks with uh, schizophrenia tend to experience it more intensely, and there are higher rates of schizophrenia diagnosis in urbanized areas. This could be for a couple of reasons. One is that um, in rural areas, people don't have access to providers who maybe would diagnose somebody with such a condition. Or... The more prevailing theory at this moment in time is that because there's wide open spaces, you can see the sun, you can see the sky, feel the earth beneath your feet instead of a concrete sidewalk. You can feel natural wind on your face. That things like psychosis and voices don't really tend to show up there. They tend to show up where skyscrapers live, where students don't know what rocks and acorns are. They think they're the same thing. We're losing our connection with the natural world, and it is showing up in mental health disparities, increases in depression and anxiety, increases in schizophrenia and psychosis. It's showing up in physical health disparities, increases in somaticized stress, obesity, insomnia, sleep difficulties. The list goes on and on and on. Now, if we're to take an existential psychological perspective here, we experience anxiety and depression when we are keenly over aware of our loneliness, when isolation becomes a prevailing thought in our thinking. Now, this can be tricky because isolation or loneliness are not always elective choices. Sometimes a person may be experiencing this because of external factors and the existential thought that they should decrease their isolation by increasing socialization is not always possible. The pandemic has been a tragically beautiful uh, way of looking at this. We cannot be together physically. It is detrimental to our health. But something that we can do is go for a walk. Hiking has been one of the permitted activities despite the most severe and stringent lockdown orders. So this is where eco-psychology can come back in. Are we really alone? Or are we interconnected into a larger web of all living beings? I may live alone, I may be alone, but as I encounter different plant life, as I encounter different 
ladybugs and moths and flies and different living things on my brief exploration into nature, I can use those as touch points to recognize that I'm part of something bigger than myself. One of my favorite quotes when it comes to the relationship between anxiety and nature is from Kathleen Usher. When we feel small, our stresses and our anxieties are also small. When we are dwarfed by the magnitude of the ocean, or when we feel small in the presence of tall trees reaching towards the sky, or when we feel exposed in an open field where you can see for miles and miles, we feel a little bit small in those moments. Our perspective shifts. It has to. There's this evidence that we can't contradict, that there is something out there other than us, something that's bigger than us. And we can allow that to dwarf us and make us feel existentially more alone or use that as a touch point for connection, that this is the world in which you live. The ground beneath your feet, the literal ground, terra firma, is part of your world. When's the last time your bare feet touched the grass or the dirt, the sand, or the water? When's the last time you allowed yourself to have a direct connection to the natural world? For those of us who are avid hikers, what do we do when we prepare to go on a hike? Pack a bag full of items just in case something bad happens, and we put on some very sturdy, thick-soled shoes. So when's the last time you let yourself really encounter nature in a rather vulnerable way? What might happen if you allowed yourself to do so? And this is some of the beauty of eco-psychology and combating nature deficit disorder. As strong as that may feel, as disconnected as we may feel, it's reversible. And truthfully, it doesn't take a whole lot out of us to be able to do this. Nature can be anywhere and everywhere. You don't have to pack up your bags and go for a week-long camping trip in the backcountry of one of the big national parks in our country. You can just walk to the end of your driveway. Look for some plants that grow in the cracks of your driveway. Find some interesting-looking rocks that have come across your way. Or walk a couple of blocks in the area in which you live. What kind of plants do your neighbors have? I was really surprised to find the area in which I live has a protected marshland. Just a few minutes walk from my house and I had no idea. I've lived in this home for almost a decade. And usually when we'd go for a walk, I would go the other direction. So during the pandemic, when forced to get creative and find ways to get outside, I finally decided to turn left out of my front door instead of right. Walked for about five minutes and discovered this big, open, marshy field with these wonderful cows just free-range grazing. Minutes from my house, I had no idea this open space existed. And maybe going for a walk isn't a safe idea where you live, or it doesn't fit into your schedule. What other ways can you engage with nature? It can be in your own kitchen. Maybe invest in a basil plant. They're pretty easy to take care of, though I confess I don't have much of a green thumb and have killed a few basil plants in my time. 
But having a basil plant or a little bit of rosemary or some type of lovely fern that you enjoy. Something that's easy to take care of and brings some life into your living space. Research shows that having greenery, living greenery in our home spaces and our workspaces can improve the air quality in some small ways, but it really improves our mental health quality rather significantly. In fact, when we have as little as 20 minutes a week of engagement with nature, we can keep off mild to moderate depression and may be able to rely more so on exercise, nature exposure, and diet for keeping uh, those thoughts and feelings away, or to use that in conjunction with medication to keep the dosage lower. So perhaps we feel a little more like ourselves in that process. But it doesn't have to be this big expedition into nature. It can be as simple as noticing some acorns on the street, or as you're walking somewhere, just paying attention to the bushes that are there. One of the other positives is that this issue of nature deficit disorder is catching the eye of researchers. So we're getting some quantified data about how this is impacting us negatively, but also how reversing it can be impacting us positively and what can be done to further the positive impact and let people have more and easier access to natural open green spaces. Rooftops of corporate buildings are excellent candidates for some green spaces to have a little garden up there where employees can go take a break in a natural open space instead of in a fluorescent lit break room with an old stinky Keurig that's on its last legs. With quantified data comes funding for improvements. So this is a very positive step for us. A creative way that families of young children are being encouraged to have increased access to nature is with the No Child Left Inside program. This promotes literacy of natural words in children's literature and vocabulary. So even things like children's encyclopedias and dictionaries started excluding elements of the natural world. Names of trees, names of different seeds, even terms like ocean and soil those were being left out in favor of more modern expectations of children, like coding and programming. Again, these are not necessarily bad things, but when we substitute one for the other, everyone misses out. So this program, No Child Left Inside, promotes literacy about the natural world. Another great program that was instituted by President Obama is the Every Child in a Park program. So every fourth grader in the United States was issued a free access pass to the national parks system. This includes a lot of different forests, historical sites, and it includes free access to some of those big name parks like Yosemite. So imagine that this is handed to a family of a child who's in the fourth grade. All of a sudden, this idea has been planted. We want to do something together as a family. We can't figure out what. Funding might be kind of tight. And now we have this idea and a foot in the door to be able to go access it. Now, if you've never had the opportunity to visit Yosemite National Park, especially Yosemite Valley, I strongly, strongly encourage you to look into putting that on your bucket list. It is one of those places where you instantly feel small and thus your anxieties, your worries, your doubts, 
immediately feel small and inevitably disappear as you stand there in that valley looking up at these 3,000-foot-tall granite cliffs that have been carved by glaciers over hundreds of years. You can't help but have a bit of a grounding moment as you're standing there. And that opportunity was given to all fourth graders across the country. With programs like the um, Every Child in a Park program and some other kind of smaller movements to get folks outside, we saw an 11% increase of adults accessing nature. And we know from child development studies that children do what we teach them to. They do what we model for them. So if we model going outside, taking care of ourselves, noticing the world that's around us, they will follow. So why nature? Why use nature when we could maybe get this experience or have a different type of self-care experience that's a little less dirty, a little less involved, maybe makes me feel not quite so vulnerable? Well, nature promotes your overall health. Being outside with fresh air and being in that natural ecosystem promotes your respiratory and cardiac health. And as has been stated, it can help treat mild to moderate depression. It also promotes a better work environment and it decreases crime. For mothers who are expecting, there have been reported better fetal growth and healthier birth weights when pregnant mom was out enjoying nature. There's also an increased physical activity and reduced risk of obesity. Even if we're just going for a walk, that can reduce our risk of obesity, reduce the risk of type 2 diabetes, and other cardiac complications. Not to mention that being outside in natural sunlight results in healthy eyes, and it promotes vitamin D, which is another essential aspect of our human existence. Furthermore, we see that outdoor play increases the likelihood that young girls will stay active into and through adolescence. There's an epidemic right now that when young girls hit middle school and high school that they become really aware of their physical selves and they drop out of sports, they drop out of physical activity altogether. And this has largely been attributed to the natural tendency of women to be very verbal and thus very social. Well, what if it's that women have not been welcomed in athletic arenas once they hit that age? If you're not a superstar athlete, then there's not a place for you. And even if you are a superstar athlete, it is very hard to earn your place and keep it in comparison to your male athletic counterparts. So when we let our girls and young women outside to play and explore in nature and have some risky exploration, yeah, there's a chance that you might get hurt. There's a chance you're going to scrape your knees or that you're going to fall down or that you might get into a little bit of trouble. That's not necessarily a bad thing either. This is how we learn and it's how we grow. And young girls aren't given these opportunities. They're expected to sit down, be quiet and do what's expected of them. But what if the expectation was that our young women were allowed to run free, to be a little wild, to come home with wild, crazy, wind-blown hair and dirt on their knees? I wonder how their self-esteem might change and how that might change their spheres around them? How would their little social and ecosystems change around them if they were allowed to be in communion with nature? 
And in terms of relationship skills, playing outside reduces anger and aggression. You have to work together when you're working with nature. So kids that are playing outside using more imaginative play has also been associated with nature exposure. But they're able to work through things and they're able to identify how to navigate conflict with less emotional reactivity when that play is taking place outside. The variety of landscape can also increase the variety in active play. Again, this might be geared more towards children at our initial look at it. But when's the last time you played outside as an adult? It's probably been a while. And why is that? Why are we for some reason forbidden to play outside? Why are we forbidden from skipping stones in a pond or seeing how far we can throw a stick or wondering how high we can climb in that tree? Just because you've been on this earth for a little more chronological year than a younger person has doesn't mean that we're exempt from play. That part of our brain never goes away. It doesn't age out. We just start ignoring it. So engage with a variety of landscapes, little hills, grass, dirt, sand, and water. It does wonders for our neurological health, for our ability to problem solve, to be creative and think outside of the box. Nature is the playground that was designed to grow our brains in this way. Studies also show that views of greenery can help students recover from stressful events more quickly. And unfortunately, the academic environment for students of any age, any grade level, is incredibly stressful. Exams, the threat of safety being compromised at school, there's a lot of stress on campus. So students that have access to some green spaces, even if it's just the soccer field, it's been shown to reduce their stress. Nature can also enhance the feelings of competence and build resilience. Remember when you were a child and you had that feeling of mastery when you were able to cross a stream or to accomplish something outside? Maybe you threw a rock the farthest out of all of your friends, or you had space outside to run and you could run the fastest, or maybe you were in the top three and that felt so wonderful to you, or the times you spent in the garden at your house, just digging in the dirt to find snails and worms, and that sense of competency and mastery that comes from that. I found this. I did this. I'm able to do this without help. We get that from nature. We oftentimes don't get that from video games. Nature can also encourage more cooperative behavior, problem-solving skills, and better motor coordination. If you haven't been to a yoga class in a very long time, or you haven't done yoga at home in a while, and you try to pick it up after a break, you notice that your balance is pretty wobbly and that your legs feel a little more like jelly than you last remembered. Well, when you're outside going for a walk, a hike, climbing a tree, walking through sand, whatever it may be, you are naturally getting those skills and those muscles back without having to focus on, ooh, my competency is a little bit down in this area. I love this quote from Ron Swaysgood, who's a biologist and co-founder of Family Adventures in Nature. Nature can be co-experienced by parent and child in ways that Chuck E. Cheese just can't. 
we have a lot of scientific evidence and we're getting quantified data around how our absence from nature has negatively impacted us and how our return to nature is positively impacting us. But one of the most beautiful qualities that nature has that, again, Chuck E. Cheese just doesn't, is this almost magical or mystical quality to it, where the good times together just seem extra good, or those memories just seem extra vibrant or extra vivid. That's the power of the natural world and the interconnectedness we have with all living things, the plants that we touch, the ground beneath our feet, thinking about the layers of ground under our feet and all of the life that's housed in that soil. When we're staring at the ocean and watching the waves crash in that rhythmic fashion, think about all the life that lives in that water between here and the next mass of land and everything that has to go perfectly together for all of this to function. And we're a part of that bigger story. That's that mysticism or that magical feeling that we have when we're in nature. It's our connection to it. And we're picking up on that on some level of our existence. And this brings us to the therapeutic aspect of eco-psychology. Eco-psychology can also be used as a therapeutic technique and ideology in which we're trying to treat psychological disorders and ailments by bringing folks spiritually closer to nature. It's not just that the different textures feel nice or that there's biomedical benefits to being out in nature. When we're in connection with living, breathing things like flora and fauna and recognizing that the soil and the water are more than just messy, dirty things that get in our way, when we allow ourselves to have this connection with another living thing, our anxiety, our depression can't help but be minimized. The existential concept of perpetual loneliness is innately challenged when we allow for ourselves to be open to the living nature of nature that's all around us. Part of eco-psychology and the spirituality of it is also opening up ourselves and increasing our awareness of the story of the land before we got here. So the place that you're in, the nature place you're enjoying, perhaps as you're listening to this, what's its story? Was that area heavily logged? Was that area almost leveled by bulldozers to build a new neighborhood but was spared for some reason? What's the reason? Who were the indigenous people that inhabited this land before we moved here? Knowing the history and the story of the land, who has taken care of the land? What flora and fauna are supposed to be here? Which ones are still here? And which ones have perhaps essentially become extinct in that area and why? When we're open to the story of the land and the place that we're in, again, we feel small in a positive way. Because remember that when we feel small, our depression and our anxiety, our worries and doubts inevitably become smaller too. And the concept of loneliness is challenged when we recognize that the land on which we stand is rich with story and rich with human footprints. 
layers and layers of soil beneath your own feet. It's all still there. It's been impacted by who was there before you. It's being impacted by you now. And it will be impacted by people who come next. So the spirituality of eco-psychology, recognizing that all living things are connected to us, not just in a practical logistical way, but in a spiritual sense as well. And connecting ourselves to the story of the places we inhabit, allowing ourselves to be part of this continuous timeline of history, rather than a standalone moment in which everything seems terrible and awful. Terrible things have happened on this land before. The land has endured. Humanity has endured. Optimism, hope, love have all endured. And so will we. And in order for us to do this, for this connection to be viable, we have to be able to leave behind what's familiar to us. Our phones, our tablets, our computers, our fear of bugs, the notion that we can't be dirty physically, we can't have soil on our shoes. We have to leave behind what's been familiar so we can reconnect with what is natural with who and what we were always intended to be. When we're able to unplug and walk away from our devices and our vices, we're emotionally available. We're oftentimes not when we're in front of a screen. But when we're able to unplug from those devices and disconnect from all of our technology we've come so reliant on, our emotions are available to us and they're available to others. I think that's another part of the mysticism or magic we experience, especially when we're in nature with other people. That conversations we've been trying to have for years all of a sudden come out. I'm suddenly able to talk about things that I've been holding on to for such a long time. What's the difference? Why is it all of a sudden here and now that this is happening? Your brain is being fed. Nature is something that feeds our brain. And remember, it feeds our creativity and our problem solving, which allows us to verbalize more eloquently, more competently. It also provides us more ample opportunities for affective sharing, responding to each other over shared sights, sounds, and experiences. Maybe we're not able to get into some of that deep content that we've been trying to talk about but having that moment together, feeling small together in nature, that is a massively bonding experience. So as we close, I hope that you are feeling motivated to try. Feeling motivated to try and identify the natural places that exist in your everyday life, whether it's in your driveway, your backyard, or your kitchen. I hope you're motivated to try to bring more nature into your living and workspaces. And I hope that you are willing to access that vulnerability that lies inside of you and that inner child that's just dying to come out and throw some sticks and remember how that feels. These are all valid living parts of ourselves and nature welcomes that integration of all of ourselves to come together. So I hope that you feel some motivation to try or look into trying to consider it. And as you're considering it, Here's a few logistical things to keep in mind. One is to be prepared. It's easy to decide on a big adventure and to go jump in head first, but we also need to be mindful of safety. 
think about day, daylight, sun exposure, hydration, making sure you have items that you need to tend to your health and to prepare for any emergencies that may arise. Another tip is to embrace the elements. You don't have to be afraid of rain. It's just water. It happens to fall from the sky, and here in California, we're not quite so familiar with that idea. But rain is another part of the natural world in which we live and with which we have a connection. And in fact, the absence of rain in many areas is indicative of the climate change we're experiencing and the necessity of our reorientation to the natural world. So perhaps take a rain jacket and an extra pair of socks in case yours get wet. But maybe let the rain fall on your face and remember what that feels like. Similarly, if you're going to be in a highly sun-exposed area, maybe take a hat or some sunscreen. Maybe pack a little extra water so you stay hydrated. Embrace the elements that are out there. We don't need to live in fear of nature. We need to live alongside with it. And finally, wherever you go, Practice the principle of leave no trace, LNT. If you're not familiar with leave no trace, it can be summed up quickly with its little mantra of leave only footprints, take only memories. It's very tempting for us to want to bring home the beautiful wildflowers or pine cones or different elements that we find, but it's important to leave them there. It's a part of that ecosystem. So leave the things that you find, perhaps take a picture of it or take a mental picture of it, or maybe you can sketch it or paint it. And most importantly, I think what people tend to struggle with the most is leaving only footprints. Take all of your trash with you from your granola bars, from whatever snacks you may have, pick up your trash and place it in an appropriate trash receptacle. If you're feeling extra motivated to tend to our earth, maybe take a little set of gloves or a little doggy bag with you so you can pick up other people's trash. Maybe they missed it on accident, or maybe they're not feeling that sense of connection with the earth. So that trash was left with some intention. So leaving no trace, leave only footprints, take only memories or pictures. And as we move forward now with our increased awareness, our desire to be connected to all of the living things in this earth, we have a choice here today. What do we do now? You can forget most of what was said here today and move on thinking, oh, that was kind of nice. Some interesting ideas from that kind of hippie lady that I listened to. Or you can make changes, changes that impact you and impact the world around you. Perhaps you start small, swapping out plastic bags for reusable ones, taking your own bags to grocery stores. Perhaps you decide to look into where your food comes from. Are you purchasing food from companies that treat their animals and their plants ethically and with respect? What about their workers? Look into your coffee beans and where they come from. Oftentimes the coffee bean harvesting industry is one of the least ethical. A small change we can make is sacrificing a few extra dollars to have that morning cup of caffeine that didn't hurt anybody in the process. Perhaps you look into where your vegetables were grown, how the workers, the farmers, the harvesters 
are treated. Perhaps you make changes there. Perhaps you shop more locally. Perhaps you consider where your meat comes from. How are the animals treated? Do you really need to eat the amount of meat that you do eat or the type of meat? Perhaps swapping your ground beef, which comes from cows that are not native to this area, swapping that for bison, which is not only leaner in fat and thus healthier for your body, but it promotes using more bison in our meat and animal industry, which is actually healthier for the land. These are the animals that are supposed to be here. Perhaps you start considering where your clothes come from. Do your clothes uh, come from sweatshops and from places that are likely exploiting their employees or using child labor? Perhaps you can make some changes to own less clothing. And that way, when you do need to purchase something, it can come from a more ethically and sustainably oriented place. One of the biggest changes we can make in our macrosphere is to be aware of some of the evils that we didn't realize we were participating in and to make some changes in that way. Global change with our dollars. Now, dollars can be in short supply, and I fully understand this. So, of course, consider what is right for you and for your family and consider how you might incorporate some of these changes and what changes might come naturally to you as you experience that increased connection with all of the living things in our world. However you choose to move forward today, do so with intention and with empathy and consideration for the living things around you and far from you. Thank you so much for taking the time out of your busy day to listen to this audio. I hope that it was an educational and challenging, positive experience for you. There is also a separate podcast, a guided eco-psychology experiential, in which I guide you through different mindfulness and eco-psychology oriented exercises. My recommendation is that you download that episode so it's on your device and pick a nature location of your choosing, something that's accessible to you, where you can have that downloaded episode to have a nature experience with a little bit of guided imagery and meditation as we continue to incorporate these eco-psychology principles into our everyday lives.